I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Thor, Love and Thunder. Kids, get to popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking, Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. After saving planet Earth for the 500th time, Thor set off on a new journey. Well, he got in shape. He went from dad bod to god bod. And after all that, he reclaimed his title as the one and only Thor. Oh, spoke too soon. Jane? The old ex-girlfriend. What's it been like? Three, four years? <laughs> Eight years, seven months and six days. Give or take. Am I uh, sensing feelings? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you're right. <laughs> the only ones who gods care about is themselves. So this is my vow. All gods will die. I just want to say that was very, very impressive what you did back there. It's just my first bad guy. You never forget your first. You are not like the other gods of Kill. You have something worth fighting for. Let's see who you are. I take off your disguise. And flick! Oh, you flicked too hard, damn it! Shall we help him? I mean, eventually. Great. Our guests this week include Name Chaibiti from our recent Ms. Marvel and Speed Racer episodes. Hello. Hello. And Austin Wilden of Wits Writing, whom you may have heard on our Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Obi-Wan Kenobi episodes. Hey, y'all. Hello. Now, we delayed talking about this one until it was on Disney Plus for three reasons. One, goddamn there's a lot of Marvel monopolizing our time. Two, Sharon and Willow needed to see it so that I could get the most perspective within our family. And three, this is a rare MCU movie that I really did not like for various clear reasons that I will go into and try not to belabor. And at the time of release, there were a lot of people watching this movie and having a lot of fun with it including many on our Discord. Not only did I not want to take that away from those folks, I needed to see it again with a bit of time to process, and frankly, so did the folks who liked it. And after seeing it a second time, far from softening on it, my conclusions are clearer still. Accordingly, I put it to the vote, and the general consensus on our Discord is mixed, which means that that's likely to be a cross-section of our listeners' take-home too. So, most of all, I'm going to try and keep this episode entertaining, and maybe we can all find something to think about and some fresh perspective. Bear this in mind. 
The reason I am critical is because I want Marvel to be on the level of brilliance that they repeatedly reached during the first three phases. It certainly wasn't every movie, but they hit that repeatedly. The MCU is not stopping anytime soon, and I think it behooves us as cinema goers and as TV viewers to want them to clear the high bar of quality that they instituted right out of the gate with Iron Man in 2008. I could write a massive essay, that was my original plan, but then I would have very little to say throughout the show. So we will go scene by scene, sifting out the good elements first, and then we can get to the meat of why this film actively bothers me. Now, some films by directors I love have disappointed me in the past and had the distinct whiff of studio meddling about them. The big one is J.J. Abrams directing The Rise of Skywalker, which unfortunately led everyone who has always hated J.J. Abrams to go, see, see? He can't direct. And it's like, no, no, he can't direct that one film. <laughs> and Peter Jackson directing The Battle of the Five Armies. These were cases where the studios had a deadline to hit and they didn't care if the film was strong, coherent, historically worthy of its final place in a saga or even properly finished. But then there's also Paddy Jenkins directing Wonder Woman 1984, David Yates directing Fantastic Beasts 2 and 3, Justin Lin directing F9 The Fast Saga, James Gunn directing The Suicide Squad, and Matt Reeves directing The Batman. A large amount of people really liked many of the above films, but they left me wanting so much more because I have felt what these creators are capable of in the past, and those were films I could not feel. And then there's Joe and Anthony Russo, some of my favorite episodes of Community, Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame. They could not fly any higher. Followed by directing The Gray Man, where for me, they could not plunge any lower. Previously, the lowest spots on my MCU tier list were reserved for another Thor, The Dark World, and the weightless and fluffy Ant-Man and the Wasp. You may remember my shows on that. But here's the thing. I expected nothing from Peyton Reed or Alan Taylor. Their, their work a day. And that is all they gave me. They, they were, and remain, mediocre helmers for mediocre films. Or else, the extreme peaks and troughs of the TV series What If, which had... Episodes that I loved that added scope to Stephen Strange and Natasha Romanoff, and episodes that I hated that made Tony Stark stupid and Eric Killmonger shallow and spiteful, undeserving of his venerated status as a complex villain. They were written by people who should have done better by the established characters. And then there was Marvel Zombies, which didn't seem to give a shit about anything except despoiling, violating, and wasting characters that we love and cracking endless jokes, none of which made me laugh. This film was helmed by one of my favorite directors. He has been in a lot of places in recent years, assisting with Moana, directing episode eight, the amazing final episode of the first season of The Mandalorian and featuring as IG-11, an assassin droid turned medical unit in astonishing fashion. He's also been in Rick and Morty, The Suicide Squad, Lightyear, and Free Guy, playing up different heightened aspects of himself. Funny, awkward, frustrating, annoying, loving. A few days before release, we put out a show called The Lost Boys and Lost Men of Taika Waititi, exploring his more personal films, Eagle vs. Shark, Boy, Hunt for the Wilder People, and Jojo Rabbit, and we were praising his smart, emotional, hilarious, and heartbreaking filming style. 
Then a few days later, I sat down and watched a film that, relative to Waititi's previous work and indeed the MCU in general, shied away from drama, delivered unearned emotional payoffs, and dodged saying anything profound about its chosen subject matters. Now, the MCU is not well known for saying profound things, but I felt like the meat that we had here, which we will be discussing, it warranted more than what was delivered in the end. Many folks found it funny, but nobody in my cinema laughed. Nobody in my living room laughed when we watched it the second time. I remembered one time Willow went, eh. It wasn't exactly a laugh, it was more of a grunt, and that was when Stormbreaker slowly started moving in from the right during one of the many, many scenes where uh, Thor was lamenting the loss of Mjolnir. I was aware that we were supposed to be laughing, which sometimes makes it worse. The conditions for laughter were handed to us, but as we pick our way back through, it should become clear why my ribs, at least, remained untickled. You see, there's a scale when it comes to humour in films, that films that have to achieve more than just comedy. And let's face it, even straight comedies have to be dramas of a sort, or we wind up not caring what's happening to the characters. At the far end of the scale, you have self-seriousness. That's things like Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which I actually found myself laughing at, even though I wasn't supposed to be laughing at it. Zack Snyder and his followers also never want laughter, so those are the extremes of self-seriousness there. And those are for films that don't actually want to be comedies, but sometimes end up kind of ridiculous because they, they're trying so hard not to be funny. Below them, we have dry comedies, like uh, the sprinkling of wit in The Winter Soldier that just humanizes our characters enough for us to really like them, especially the back and forths between Steve and Natasha, those, and, and uh, Steve and Sam. Under that, you have well-calibrated comedies like Guardians of the Galaxy, and I would say Ragnarok, occupying that space too. They are hilarious, but they'll also break your heart. There's many other points on the scale, but I just want to illustrate what th this film was capable of, because beneath that point, you have films that don't want you to take them seriously. And it's that level that I feel Love and Thunder erratically strays into, whether intentionally or not. It has bedfellows like the Austin Powers movies and the Scary Movie series. But because Thor is an existing character who was there before Taika, frankly, Thor was there before any of us, and who will be there long after us, what this movie does is borrow the characters. And I get the distinct impression that not only does it not want us to take them at all seriously, but that it doesn't internally care about any of them either. This makes it feel like a parody of its former self, like Terminator 3 was, embarrassed to be a stupid robot movie. I get the distinct impression, by the way, this is an aside, from watching the making of stuff, Taika really likes his actors, and his actors really like Taika. And this one, it seemed like, yeah, we got Chris here to do this, that, and this, and the character of Thor was pretty much subsumed by the actor Chris Hemsworth. We'll talk about that in a bit. So I don't doubt Taika's heart, but he definitely didn't care that much about the characters. And yet we begin with the total opposite of that, because this wandering, dying man and his daughter in the desert feel like we are definitely supposed to care about them. So let us begin by talking Gore the God Butcher, played by Christian Bale, whom 
I still think is the best element of this movie. The, the biggest issue, I like you kept coming back to this, um, Sharon, was tone shifts. Mm. And there's a major one in the first few minutes. Mm -hmm. So, like, first off, what's good about this scene, the opening scene in the desert? We begin on this parched, baked, pale ground. This, to me, was Malekith done right. Mm -hmm. So he's got very mm. similar... Malekith, as written for uh, the second Thor film, was supposed to have a daughter who died that he was trying to avenge. Right. They okay. clearly exported that mm. idea. There we go. So my one of the issues that I always had with Malekith was the fact that because the only reason we knew about his motivations was because he said them... In an elf language, not English. and frequently, As we but hate not movies in said. a way that we could really get behind and, and feel. We couldn't connect with what was moving him, with what was driving him to want to achieve all of this darkness. As We Hate Movies said, uh, one of the Christopher Eccleston's major talents is speech. He's really good with words. And he's there going, And it's like, okay, we can read the subtitles, but since you're remaining totally stony-faced and saying them, we're not getting the best out of you here. It's, it's worth commenting that I always forget that that was Chris Eccleston. <laughs> he doesn't look like Chris Eccleston. He doesn't sound like Chris Eccleston. He doesn't Eccleston. act like Chris Eccleston. Indeed. But Gore was... What I think, if we'd had this for Malekith, it would have made all the difference to the Dark World. Mm. So we see what he's struggled with, what he has... Well, we, we are about to hear what he has dedicated himself to and why. And we feel his pain and we feel his loss. We actually see the progress of that loss, that in his moment of greatest pain he is not angry he is very very sad but he's calm and he doesn't immediately start roaring at the heavens when he realizes that his daughter is dead notably the first appearance of gore in the comics was january 2013 jason aaron who did the lady thor run with jane Foster. Uh, so I'm willing to bet that they heard that this was going to be a, like that the lost daughter was going to be something for Malekith. And then as Thor the Dark World got went into post-production, it was like, no, we're not using that plot point. Can we have it? Yes, you can. And they, they, this character is almost like Malekith by any other name. Mm, yeah. One of the strongest things this movie has going for it in general, not just in this opening, is its sense of visuals. Like, mm -hmm. like you were talking about those behind the scenes earlier. i they're on Disney Plus. Watched it right before coming to record this, and so much of that is just talking about how they achieved the look of this movie. Gore's journey begins in this barren wasteland, which eventually leads to him declaring himself the ultimate Malthiest. And at the end, when he's accepted that Thor is a loving and caring god, even if that makes him the exception rather than the rule as what most of this movie suggests, he's in Eternity's realm, which is all water. The sympathy of the first opening scene with Gore and his daughter is so striking because you're coming into this movie after seeing trailers of this real, this real crazy romp. It becomes a romp. You see a, a, a glimpses of him coming into this movie, or maybe he's on the poster, and then you don't see Thor right away. You see Gore, and you see Gore at his lowest point. He's just lost everything, and we see it happen, and it is it's gut wrenching. It's 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 very visually and emotionally striking, 
And all of that goes into when he meets his own God. And it's just like, wow, I totally understand why this person is, you know, on on a rampage. And, you know, maybe he's got a point that we should listen to. <laughs> yeah, um, they almost did their job too well here by having this uh, God yeah. that he meets act like such an ass and be so dumb. He's like, ah. Oh. I just killed the guy who was holding the weapon that the only weapon that can kill me, don't touch it. You stupid idiot. You and your daughter are just going to hell. You're not going anywhere. No Valhalla for you. Christian Bale actually went back to a place I did not expect. Have you folks seen Empire of the Sun? No. We did it for our Spielberg season. He plays a a little boy. He's not an adult man. He was actually a little boy at the time, uh, who is lost in Shanghai uh, during World War II and has to bounce between various uh, internment camps and, and various caregivers who are sort of saddled with this this tag-along kid. But when he smiles at the god and I kind of thank God I found thank thank you I found you. Uh, he's got that childlike. Like, you're my salvation, but like he's so blistered and so blasted and everything about what he's been through is just horrific that when the god acts like a piece of shit and goes, oh, how funny. He's basically hedonism, but from Futurama, only not funny. The reason that it's too good is that I was like, absolutely, Gore, you carry on, mate. You just like any god who acts like this, just strike that head from their shoulders. No more gods. And then that theme never, ever ever gets explored in the film. It's just a sort of thing that's out there happening. We never see it. I think he kills one god that we get to see, and then Thor kills another god. So they're basically even. And we're Mm -hmm. told he's killed a whole bunch of dudes. And uh, Zeus comes back at the end, so technically he's not dead. He's getting better. But... Uh, he's a sort of a mild threat because when it's like he's got our kids, they're like, oh, God, we got to go rescue the kids. Okay, come on. Like, this is not on my schedule, you know, just. And the, at no point is the weight behind Christian Bale's performance and Gore's quest ever afforded traction in the rest of the film that that is one of their absolute major mistakes to my mind i feel like a big part of that is the complete lack of any exploration of what it means to be a god Mm -hmm. in the mcu so we don't get any discussion about what gods actually are we don't even get the token nod of well the asgardians aren't really gods they're just aliens it's just that when they came down people thought they were gods and worshiped them as gods mm. is that is is zeus the same is this god that gets found in the oasis by gore the same or are they something else are they something beyond they appear to have some components of immortality to them but that can be overcome using this specific weapon so really what i see when i look at these gods that Gore is going around and assassinating off screen because we don't see it happen uh, is beings of greater privilege strength and wealth than all the other people around them and rubbing it in everyone's faces refusing to help very difficult they could save the universe but they don't they're sitting on all the wealth but they don't it's very you could have made a statement but you didn't by having it framed that way by not having the conversations about what a god actually is the way it comes across to me is well gore's killing billionaires so um on you go continue Alex, when you invited me on, you actually asked me to bring in the Jason Aaron run that oh, this please, pulls yeah. from when it's relevant. And everything you've just said is 
incredibly relevant be- because, like, the presentation of gore in the comics is different in subtle but important ways. Like, one, we get to see a lot more of what he does. We see a version of his origin that goes over a much broader stretch of time where he denounces belief in any gods before he comes across two that crash on his planet that were locked in battle. And after all this misery that he's been through in his life, the Book of Job squared, basically. So you see a lot more grand atrocities. And you also see a lot more of Thor grappling with what it means to be a god because in this run, part of the reason that Mjolnir was free for Jane to pick up in the comics is Thor reflects on what Gore represented so much that he no longer feels himself worthy. Where was that? That was... Where was that? Okay. That sounds crucial for this whole concept. Stop me if this sounds familiar. A god who is cast down to earth for being a selfish warmongering brat who went to another planet to start smashing the place up uh, for a uh, a slight that has effectively already been rectified as petty vengeance because they messed up his coronation, but then finds humility, comes back, refuses the throne, even though Odin was offering it to him, and allows Loki, in the guise of uh, Odin, to maintain being on the throne, doesn't check back for a long, long time, effectively abdicates, goes away, then comes back after looking for Infinity Gems at the beginning of Ragnarok, uh, helping the Avengers fix up Earth because his brother done fucked it up. Uh, realizes, of course, that uh, Odin is not on Asgard and hasn't been for a long, long time, that it's Loki, goes and deals with with, uh, that sort of thing, brings uh, Odin back, his mother's already dead, Odin then dies, then Hela comes back, takes over Asgard, then Thor finally gets away from Sakaar, returns with Loki and the two brothers help to get rid of this goddess of death and unfortunately in the doing so he brings all the people with him as many as they can get because Asgard is a people not a place and the place explodes so it's like Asgard is a people and then he ascends to the throne in a perfect moment of coming full circle they even play Patrick Doyle's wonderful Thor music to show that he's made this journey and then sits down and says, Earth it is. And then we've got Infinity War. A lot of people didn't like the, the backtracking of what uh, the Russo brothers did to Thor there. But uh, for me, especially in retrospect, they were taking the version of Waititi's Thor and just layering on the drama and sadness and the frustration whilst allowing him to still be funny and deflect the rage and grief with humor, which he did, like Chris Hemsworth stole phase three. So dead brother, huh? Yeah, it could be annoying. Well, he's been dead before. You know, this time I think it really might be true. And you said you, your sister and your dad? Both dead. But still got a mom, though? Killed by a dark elf. A best friend? Stabbed through the heart. You sure you're up to this particular motor mission? Absolutely. No rage and uh, vengeance, anger, loss, regret. They're all tremendous motivators. They really clear the mind, so I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah, but, I mean, this Thanos we're talking about, he's the toughest there is. Well, he's never fought me. Yeah, he has. He's never fought me twice. And I'm getting a new hammer, don't forget. Well, it better be some hammer. 
You know, I'm 1,500 years old. I've killed twice as many enemies as that, and every one of them would have rather killed me, but none succeeded. I'm only alive because fate wants me alive. Thanos is just the latest in a long line of bastards, and he'll be the latest to fill my vengeance. Fate wills it so. Mm-hmm. And what if you're wrong? Well, if I'm wrong, then what more could I lose? That's why people were like, Iron Man in Phase 1, Captain America in Phase 2, Thor in Phase 3. That's why each of them stepped up to the plate there. Then in Endgame, I still think they fucked up the, uh, the, the horrendously depressed fat Thor because he could be horrendously depressed and emaciated. Uh, instead, he was just a walking couch gag and muddied the waters of what they've been trying to do for the last two films and had been successfully doing. But at the end, after everything New Asgard has been through, after all of the people who've looked to him to be a leader, after they lost their home of thousands of years, after they lost God knows how many of their number to Hela, after they lost even more of their number to Thanos, and after they pitched up on Midgard to scratch out a living on the cliffside, and after five years of him being consumed by depression, he does not address Despite his responsibilities, he spends his time playing video games with his idiot friends. After all those years of not being their king, once more, he leaves. With the most irresponsible dudes in the galaxy, puts Valkyrie in charge, abdicating responsibility yet again. And somehow, Valkyrie ends up making more of a mockery of Asgard than Loki did lying on his ass eating grapes and watching plays about himself. Asgard has a serious leadership problem, and I don't think the films realise this. So then, the remainder of them are left on Earth in, I think, Norway or somewhere near that? Uh, and which, in what, where I suspected, was exactly the spot that Odin died, because that's where Mjolnir gets shattered and no one can move the parts. I thought that was a really neat touch in this film, by the way. But Thor's off working out, having fun with the Guardians, maybe liberating a few bits and bobs, but we don't see him doing anything particularly constructive. If, if anything, he destroys that temple at the beginning whilst trying to save it, which illustrates that far from maturing, he's actually gone backwards and is actually way worse than the Thor we first met in 2011. He's a child now. And I don't know about you folks, but a, being slammed hard with the realization that, oh, I'm an irresponsible god myself, and that's why I can't pick up any hammer, would be a really, really good plot for this film. Because Gore's right. By the way, any of you listeners also get Star Trek V, the Final Frontier vibes off this beginning? A disheveled disciple in the desert, a false prophet, and a loser-ass god who needs a ride-off world, can I borrow your starship? When he steals the kids, like, this is a later on thing, I never ever thought he's going to murder those children. And it seems like our heroes don't either, which kind of makes him even more sympathetic. Like, he's scaring them with pantomime stuff, but it, it's, it's manifestly obvious, though never actually stated, that they were just bait for a trap so he could get hold of Stormbreaker. Mm. Which, by the way, was right within his grasp, and he doesn't take it for reasons. And also, he doesn't seem to perceive Thor as a god because he's not really attempting to kill him. Yeah. He holds him at sword point, but then conveniently doesn't kill him. Because he wants the axe. But if he does kill him, he can have the axe. Yes. You see what I mean? Yes. 
Oh, it's going to be difficult for Thor to get out of this one. Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? Yeah, he just flies away, does something else. Anyway, this also reminded me, uh, this reminded Willow with the whole raging at the gods of Kratos. Very specifically, um, Gore the God Butcher was created in the years after Kratos had had his trilogy, you know, before Dad of Boy. But uh, clearly Jason Aaron was like, I could see how this pale, bald man with bladed weapons would be really pissed off with gods. This is Only Time by Enya, which was used to fantastic musical effect in Deadpool 2 in 2019. What then follows is a previously on Thor section where Korg talks you lightly through the previous Thor films and as a surrogate for Waititi himself, makes it abundantly clear that nobody really cares about the previous supporting cast, including the Warriors 3, Volstagg, Fandral, Hogan, Lady Sif, who gets a Monty Python joke about her arm. Oh shit, I won't be going to Valhalla. Hmm. Frigga, Odin, Loki, 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 Loki. I felt a massive Loki-shaped hole in this thing. We need another ship that will tear mine to pieces. She's right, we need one that can withstand the geodetic strain from the singularity. And has an offline power steering system that could also function without the onboard computer. And we need one with cup holders because we're gonna die, so. Drinks. Do I know you? I, I feel like I've known you. I feel like I know you too. It's weird. The Grandmaster has a great many ships. I may even have stolen the access codes to his security system. And suddenly you're overcome with an urge to do the right thing. Heavens no. I run out of favor with the Grandmaster, and in exchange for codes and access to a ship, I'm asking for safe passage through the anus. And just visual shots of Thor working out so he could go from being fat and sad to more muscular than Chris Hemsworth has ever been in his entire life to the point where he actually could barely cope with the mass he was having to maintain for this production and stupid. But the Guardians of the Galaxy are there for four and a half minutes, less than I think most of us thought they would be. I mean, none of them really say anything at all, but Peter Quill says one thing and that leads me to Quill's pep talk to Thor, talking about how shitty he felt. I kind of like how, like, Chris Pratt's performance there is more mature. It felt like he's actually, uh, the, the dynamic between them had switched, and now Thor's a child, and then he's the grown-up, which is odd, uh, because we didn't see any of that stuff. I also liked the, the blue people, when they shuffle up, say, that was our most sacred shrine. They point out earlier that they, they found that their gods are dead, but they still want to keep the shrine up. That's fascinating, because that is talking about faith in something way beyond Absolutely. what is stabbable in yeah. terms of gods. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, can we explore that? No, we apparently can't and don't. It's not about faith at all. Here's some goats instead. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, the fucking goats. I... Do you know how many times those can goats I... stream? Because I counted. And giant goats! Oh, look at those! They are wonderful! Yes, they are. They also scream quite a lot. Oh my gosh. Uh, let I me guess. Count let me guess. per scream, but I counted per scene where them screaming was a key part okay, of it. Okay, how many and scenes was it? 12, which in a movie that's 110 minutes without the end credits mm. means more than once every 10 minutes. Yeah. Oof. Anyone want to guess, guess at how many individual screams there were? Because once you've seen it the first time and you've just ground your teeth and you're like, no more, please. When you see it the second time, each individual scream hurts all the more because you are in <laughs> fact doubling your numbers. Anyone want to guess how many times? 
I'm going to guess 19 times. That's a little conservative. Austin? I'm going to say 40. 40? Whoa, Jesus. I, I think I'd have gone mad. I think I'd have become <laughs> Alex DeLarge in the Clockwork Orange going, Stop the girl screaming! But with his ears pinned open instead. <laughs> uh, it was actually 21, which man, means I've now heard hey. that goat scream 42 times. And uh, on the making of... 42? The, yeah, it's not magic, unfortunately. <laughs> the production designers and creature effects folks were talking about trying to make the goat... Making physical versions of the goats so that they'd have constant references for the uh, folks rendering those into CG creations. And they wanted them to look real, like really real massive goats. Two things. If they're constantly referencing 21 times a meme from 2011, which is going to get further and further away from us uh, as we go on, and in fact came out before a lot of the seeming target audience for this movie were born, it's not going to feel real. It will, in fact, undermine how not real they are because they are walking the same joke over and over again, this grating, obnoxious joke. But the other thing is... This has already been done in Marvel. MODOK, that robot chicken-looking show that no one saw with Patton Oswalt as MODOK, actually had him have a chariot drawn by those goats, and they did the screaming. That actually something I've been wanting to bring up, which is a quote from a comics writer, uh, Walter Simonson, who wrote and for a large part also drew what's widely considered the absolute best run on the character of Thor in Marvel Comics. Was that in the 70s when he got turned into a frog? 1980s, and yes, that is when he got turned ah. into a frog. Oh, is that, is that the one with Beta Ray which, Bill being introduced? Yes. There like, perhaps the most powerful lesson I learned from those comics that's referring to the Jack Kirby Stan Lee run on Thor mm -hmm. was that if you kept a straight face, you could do anything. The wildest stories were possible if you invited the readers to come along on the journey without breaking faith in them. No nudges in the ribs or sly winks to let them know that we were all in on the joke. The essence of a good story was to bind the reader with a spell broken only at the story's conclusion, and perhaps not even then. It says on the title page of one of those issues, in tribute to Karl Barks, and Karl Barks is famous for his for his quote, I always thought of these ducks as characters first, not as ducks. Baker, baker, baking a cake, make me a day, and make me whole again. This leads me on to Jane dealing with chemo, which is a nightmare. It is one of the worst things you could possibly imagine having to go through or having to be close to someone who has to go through it. It's incredibly painful. It dominates your life. It saps your strength and eats your body. It brings out all the negative emotions and it goes on and on and it's incredibly expensive, especially in America. We've seen movies where this is done tactfully and handled well. Creed's a really good example. Rocky didn't want to go through chemo because he saw what it did to Adrian, his wife who eventually died. He doesn't want to go through that nightmare himself. He just wants to, to let it happen. And uh, Adonis has to fight hard to bring him back from that. This is a very serious, very personal, very real subject matter. And it disappointed me greatly that it is barely touched upon in this movie. Jane definitely experiences some measure of frustration, but 
I was waiting for her hair to come out as a result of the chemo, for the juxtaposition of her with these flowing gold Thor locks, but as soon as she retransforms back into Jane, she's very, very thin and emaciated looking. And that would be frightening, frankly. And it would be off-putting to a lot of audiences, but it would be honest about this awful thing. So either be honest about this awful thing or don't include this awful thing just because it was in the comic. There is a fraction of it when she stood in front of the mirror. Yes, there um, is a fraction of it. Sink. Yeah, but you're the goats got right. way more screen time than yes. Jane's cancer. Yes, they did. Honestly, I think the... the they also got more conversation. <laughs> they almost got more lines than Valkyrie. Mm. Time Thought on me Friends with time Thought we'd be fly Maybe not this time The scene that I have the biggest beef with in regard to this is uh, the one with Darcy because they they use Darcy as a stress puncturing tool mm-hmm. and i think that does that sells jane short it sell, certainly sells natalie portman short in her ability to uh, to get across the depth of feeling that jane would would have at this point mm. it sells cat denning short as well because i think she would have been capable of so much more in that moment of have a connection between these two women who have been friends since the beginning of this story. Mm. And instead, she just comes in and is like, do you know what? Don't you worry about it. You're going to be fine. Everything goes wrong at once. Nobody wants to help me, and I'm dying. You're not dying, Mom. I got the results of the test back. I definitely have breast cancer. Look, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. (laughs) If your scene is comparable with something filmed by Tommy Wiseau, you're done fucked up. Oh, no. (laughs) Tommy Wiseau for Thor 5. (laughs) Honestly, better movie. (laughs) I'm the god of thunder. He is Thor. You couldn't have him as anyone else. Oh, hi, Gore. (laughs) (laughs) Even just for another play within a play, that would have been funnier than the second go at this conceit in Love and Thunder that was so winning in Ragnarok. But here, there was so much going on, and I was much more interested in how they'd got to where they were than just getting recapped on the major plot points of Ragnarok. Because somehow, New Asgard is now this disgusting theme park and that's fine you can have that in your movie you can even have the thanos holding a cone ice cream shop but the moment that thor touches down he needs to be looking up at that and then he needs to turn around and say valkyrie in a kind of a what What have you fucking done and then valkyrie is like you're calling me irresponsible here I need to support these people. This is the only way. And like interrogating the idea of what she has turned this place into, what she has allowed this place to turn into, somehow galvanized by poor Tessa Thompson doing TV spots for Verizon Wireless in real life, but as Valkyrie. Back in 2013, I did a skit on our Iron Man 3 episode 
where Justin Hammer tried to get each of the core team members to endorse crummy products. And now that nightmare has come true. Tony, hey. Hey, Justin. Thanks for meeting with me. Yeah, my least favorite person. I got Earth's mightiest marketing team behind me right now. Had a few words with your buddy Thor. Mm, what? We made this last week. Check it I'm out. I'm on a journey. You make that journey special. Oh, dear God. The world tree grows. And you are sitting right on top of it. Any great chicks are gonna love this one. My hammer is rising. Yikes. Every dream is a poem waiting to be kissed into a magic. Chanel number five. How about that? He says 41 words, he gets paid seven million dollars. Insipid. Yeah, okay, I would pay seven million dollars if you would never show me that one again. Nicky, Nick, the big N. Okay, kids, they love the eye patch. They're wearing them out in the street. The trouble is, their depth perception is going straight to hell. Would you consider a monocle? Get this motherfucker off my helicarrier. Steve, Cap, can I call you Cap? No, you may not. You are a big, huge, major hit with the over 80s. Ah. Uh... Good. Country Kitchen, Old Spice, Werther's Originals. Okay, I'm done here. What, too German? Okay, Dr. Banner. I'm gonna say two words. Hulk Burgers. I don't think I'm really prepared to do that. They're supersizing the Happy Meal, they're hulking out, the kids will love it. Green meat. <laughs> oh, Jesus! Oh my god! Okay, let me just uh, take this away from you here. And, uh, okay, you're not to the Iron Man watch. Hmm, the Iron Man whiskey. Not gonna touch that okay, one. These are private. Obadiah stain remover. Come on. And yeah, it was just an idea. Classy. Classy move. Trevor Slattery, my main Mandarin. Justin Hammer, as I live and breathe. Let me tell you something, baby. People are loving your character. We're talking a Gatorade. Yes. New hot British Mandarin flavor. Yes. New line of Calvin Klein bathrobes. Ooh, loving it. New phone with exactly ten rings. I will do anything you say. That's what I'm talking about. That's why I love this guy. It is repugnant. But on the table is not, should we have done this? It's, hey, Asgard's fun. Okay. Yeah. Odds of Disney allowing a discussion about whether theme parks are a good idea in their movie. Dumbo. Dumbo had a fucking Bioshock-like guy who was an analogue for uh, Walt Disney, played by Michael Keaton, in his fucking weird Adventureland type thing. And it seems like the movie is being critical. I feel like right now yeah. they can't afford and any question marks. They should then don't not do this. Have then don't do this gag. So- We'd also, in doing this, it cuts away from Jane becoming the mighty Thor. So yeah. much and- of significance happens off screen in this yeah. movie. Sharon, you pointed out that... Um, Exactly why the hammer chooses Jane. Uh, yeah. Am yeah. I worthy of this hammer? Well, not not really, but you know what you are. Yeah, um, like, you, you're being protected by the hammer because I asked it nicely. Oh, like, uh, babysat, if you will. That's and Thor that, doesn't even that, realize that he cast that spell when he was too drunk to remember it. But it was such. It was a, during a montage. Those are hard to remember. Yeah. In the Jason Aaron run, we actually find out Jane has cancer even before Thor starts to, like, starts feeling unworthy. So, and, like, one thing she makes very clear to Thor is, which is in line with the themes of the run overall, I don't want your godly assistance for this. I'm going to get through this with human science. It's that theme that starts with Gorgon, like, what is a god in this world? What is their duty to the people? And and crucial to, to the comics is that when she becomes Thor, we don't know who the woman wielding the hammer is for a good few issues. And when we find out, we see exactly the image of Jane that Alex was describing earlier, basically to say her disease has 
advanced so far since the last time you saw her. What makes it all worse is that this is something the movie kind of does. It's really clumsily integrated. Mjolnir's magic does heal Jane. It's just that Mjolnir's definition of healing includes flushing the chemo out of her system. That's what I wanted to ask, because it seems like Mjolnir is is making Jane strong, but then at one point, I think, is it Korg mentions in the film, but it's also killing you or making you weaker? Uh, it's Thor right before the final confrontation with Gore. Right. Like when he's, sa- like when he's saying, no, I don't want you coming, coming with me. I don't want you picking up that hammer again. Anyway, I'm not going to make sure to take it with me, even though I am still worthy to wield it. Mm. That is uh, sad and clever at the same time, because effectively chemo is poisoning yourself. It is, it's setting your body up to be able to deal with the cancer via the use of poison. And again, it ties into that theme of like, how can gods help? Are gods able to help? Yeah. Does he say the thing about it's flushing chemo from your system? Because I, I, I've no, seen it twice. No, he doesn't say that. that. He, no one says anything that specific. <laughs> Surprise me. The doctor says something in her system is re- is refusing to fight the cancer. And Thor says to her, Mjolnir is sapping your mortal strength. It's left without specifics. And if you've read the comics, you can interpret it as it flushing the chemo out of her system. But there's nothing that specific about how they discuss it or portray it in this movie. Now, at this stage of the recording, we discussed queer representation in Thor Love and Thunder. However, it had absolutely zero impact upon the podcast, so it was easy to just cut it out. It was only scraps anyway. You can, however, hear that in the thoroughly queer-friendly Cutting Class bonus episode released at the end of this week on our Patreon. Okay, so a lot of this film seems to be about Thor's insecurity over Mjolnir. It seems like he's more sad about not having Mjolnir and jealous and wants to get Mjolnir back. He's more that than he is supportive of Jane being the mighty Thor. Well, what's aggravating about it is that it doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You have this you have this arc of the Stormbreaker being jealous of Mjolnir and you never get any input from Mjolnir. There's no, there's no, there's no character there at all. Stormbreaker, in in in, in a light, you can see it as sympathetic. You'd be like, okay, okay, how are they going to fix this thing? Because Stormbreaker is Thor's hammer now, and Mjolnir is Jane's hammer now. And it seems like it's coming to a point when Mjol, uh, Stormbreaker is opening up this portal towards the end of the movie, and it's being used against. You know, maybe against its will by Gore and Thor's like, no, I know we've had fights. I know we've, I, I, I know we've come to this point, but you can stop this because I believe in you. And I, does anything come from that? The portal still opens. He's able to get I, it out, but there's no, there's, there's no signal from Stormbreaker itself that a, a threshold has been made, and there's no change from Thor that a change has been made. Because by the end of the movie, he's not holding Stormbreaker, he's holding Mjolnir. And and, and somebody else should be holding uh, Mjolnir, I think. I come up here sometimes when I can't sleep, or when I'm trying to reconcile particle data, or when Darcy's driving me crazy. I come up here a lot, actually, now that I think about it. I'm really glad you're safe. You've been very kind to me. I, 
I've been far less grateful than you deserve. Well, I hit you with my car a couple times, so I think that kind of evens things out. <laughs> Perhaps I had it coming. Oh my god. I don't believe it. It was all I could get back. I'm sorry it's not as much as I promised. No, no, this is great. This is I don't have to start from scratch now. Thank you. What's wrong? Shield, whatever they are. They're going to do everything in their power to make sure this research never sees the light of day. No, Jane. Listen to me, you must not give up. You must finish what you started. Why? Because you're right. Yeah, look. Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same thing. What is that? My father explained it to me like this, that your world is one of the nine realms of the cosmos, linked to each other by the branches of Vigdrasil, the world's tree. Now you see it every day without realizing. The images glimpsed through, uh, what did you call it, this, uh, this Hubble telescope. Hubble. <laughs> Hubble telescope. <laughs> So the nine realms. Now there is Midgard, which is Earth. It's Alfheim, Vanaheim, Jotunheim, and Asgard. And that's where I come from. I said back in 2012 when we covered the original Thor, I really liked the chemistry they have then. And they've never gotten that back. And at what could have been its dramatic peak in Love and Thunder, it fumbles and stumbles. Thank you, Jane. Jane tells Thor she's dying and will be dead very soon. And Thor starts to give her a speech about being a Thor. And he doesn't break. He doesn't, it doesn't hit him like a sledgehammer that this mortal that he's known for a short while and then lost and then got back, that, that she's dealing with something so mortal. I just, I look at that scene, Chris Hemsworth delivering that speech and think, just keep the script exactly as it is, but get Chris to just hold back what, you know, to just like force himself to get her to focus on the moment, even though it's tearing him up inside and he wants to do something about her instead of dealing with gore. Just watch it carefully next time you see it and just see that the, the words are about right, but the delivery seems like it, it it's entirely disinterested in the dramatic side of this film. It seems to want romance because he refers back to feeling shitty and then they kiss. But because we're not allowed the actual drama as the foundation, it feels hollow, which is a big shame. I, again, we keep bringing up this behind the scenes. Like In that behind the scenes, they actively say, oh, we can just do what we want now. We don't have to worry about the old stuff. It's what we did with Ragnarok. This is the one place you really can't ignore the past because this goes back to the foundations of Thor as a character in film. To 
come at a cinematic universe with over 10 years of history and then to say, oh, we don't have to care what came before is an interesting choice. It's not necessarily a wrong choice. (laughs) To the fourth film's credit, it does at least have this scene. And what I find so frustrating is that it is exemplary of what this film could have been if the rest of it had cohesively matched this tone, had allowed for the emotional fluctuation and humor. Oh, no, 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 that's got to stay in there. That's all the magic potions and elixirs doing their thing. So I'm just going to pop out for a moment, pick up the kids, uh, kill the bad guy, and then I'll uh, come straight back. You're going without me? Uh, yeah. What happened to, like, doing everything together? He's going to use uh, those kids to distract you. You need me. I do need you, Jane. I need you alive. It'd be great to have you on the battlefield, fighting Gore side by side, but that hammer is killing you. Every time you use it, it's draining all of your mortal strength, leaving your body unable to fight the cancer. What happened to live like there's no tomorrow? Well, it's before I knew you might not have one. Why not have one more adventure? Jane, if there's a chance to live, you have to take it. Spoken like a truthor who does not have cancer. I know I seem like some cool astrophysicist from New Mexico, just living the dream, but look at me. I want to keep fighting. I'm the mighty Thor. And you want me not to do that? What's the point of more time at this? Because I love you. I've always loved you. And this is a chance for us. If you pick up that damn hammer again, then that chance is gone. It's your choice, Jane. But I'd regret it every single day if I didn't ask you to stay here so we could try and figure this out together. You better come back to me. I'm coming back as soon as I can. Break a leg. I'll break all these legs. <laughs> uh, also, uh, very notably, that scene where Jane, it flashes back to Jane as a little girl and her mother's dying of something unspecified. And I'm like, okay, this illustrates why she's so scared it's like rocky and adrian and like this she's she has personal experience with something like this and that's it's a really great little moment this is before they depart and then she smashes the sink in the bathroom and it's like she's finally angry and frustrated can we deal with that and then she and valkyrie exchange a just a brief conversation where everything's said with their eyes and that's the scraps we get in terms of drama Again, Tessa Thompson is magnificent. And actually, if you watch Tessa Thompson in interviews about this, she really understands filmmaking. She's going to direct if she hasn't already. Tessa Thompson is going to be a fantastic filmmaker. I have faith because she knows what the fuck she's talking about. She should direct one of the creeds. If Michael B. Jordan gets to, so should she. Mm, absolutely. On top of that, they bench her. I, the, 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 the final battle, it's like, right, thanks for coming along for the ride, Valkyrie. You got wounded, didn't you? So off you go, you're not important. Let's all thank mm-hmm. Valkyrie for turning up. Yeah. So the hop, skip and jump through uh, Mrs. Foster's death. Jane is finally frustrated. We go and meet the other gods and uh, Russell Crowe as Maxi Zeus. He <laughs> <sighs> might as well be. <sighs> this accent, folks... 
I, I'm sure I, I half remember someone from actual Greece saying, it's fantastic feeling represented. Or maybe I just imagined it. Because this accent is like, uh, I think Kermode said, he sounds like Jared Leto in that House of Gucci film doing his like <laughs> uh, extreme Super Mario version of Italian well, Right, Greek yeah, man. see that, that Wait, was my here- thought because y- you said that it sounded like he was doing a Greek accent, but to me, it sounded like he was doing an Italian accent because they'd forgotten that Zeus was a Greek god and not a Roman god. Mm. It's all the Mediterranean. Yeah, it's all in that general area. <laughs> I'd have been fine with him going, Oi, I'm a Spaniard! It just... <laughs> be. I mean... <sighs> Watching the opening sequence with the Guardians of the Galaxy again gave me such a hankering for more time with them that I actually picked up the Xbox game, Guardians of the Galaxy. And I've been having a lot of fun with that. It feels authentic, in some ways more so than some of the MCU stuff. More like it's coming from a place of absolute love from its creators and less like they're trying to sell you something. Uh, So, speaking of video games, when they finally get to where they're going, it's Super Mario Galaxy, and I couldn't not be delighted by that, the idea of a little planetoid that you could run uh, around in about four minutes. Yeah, that's another joke that really worked for me. When they, the forced perspective, they crash into the Mm. little moon. And you're like, oh, yeah. Even even on the rewatch, that caught me off guard. Yeah. I do like what they do with the monochrome and making everything go black and white, and then when Bale turns up, he's got golden eyes. That was really striking. Oh, yeah. And he's even scarier in this sort of shadows and darkness. And it felt like this was the point when he could capture them all and then walk around talking about how irresponsible gods are and none of them can really argue with him. You know how in uh, Star Wars Episode Seven, you've got um, a lot of different people clamoring on the either the validity or the villainy of Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. And Luke Skywalker is not there and he's missing. Yeah. The best parts of this movie is the drama of Gore and the drama of Jane picking up the hammer to become Thor. Maybe <clears throat> this movie would have been better if you just took out Chris Hemsworth and he's gone. He's missing. We don't know where he is. He never comes back to New Asgard. Jane's sick. She picks up the hammer. She then protects Asgard. And then who comes knocking on their door because there's a new god? It's Gore. And so you got all of this this comedy and all of this laughter at Chris Hemsworth. And, oh, look how funny he is. Maybe if we take out all of that, which is 70% of the movie, and we just have honest conversations on what gods are and what they should be and what we can do to fill those shoes, because Jane picks up the hammer the same way Gore picks up this blade, that I, I would want to watch that. Me too. I love that description, especially as it's uh, it's it's kind of paralleling Sam in uh, uh, Captain America. We don't have yeah. Steve for that, and yeah. Sam's going to have to carve out his own shield. And it's very much in keeping yeah. with all of this uh, torch passing that's yeah. going on in, in other elements of Phase Four. You can even still have Jane die at the end, and Thor come back and pick the hammer, or uh, like. Maybe don't even pick up the hammer yet. Maybe feel like he's unworthy, but just because... I was thinking about how Jane dies in this, because that did get to me. When she's put on the hospital bed and he says, don't follow me, there there was a real feel there of this could get 
personal and real in a way that all the space magic is just taken out. And I feel like the Russo brothers would have done that. That Jane does make a final last-ditch attempt to stop Gore, and doing so is at the expense of her own life. But rather than turning into golden dust and floating away, Thor brings her back to uh, Earth and the hospital... And then just a long ellipsis of, of Thor sitting by her bed as she deteriorates and gets worse until the bed is empty and Thor is just sat there. And it's like, that's the reality. That is what it is like to be with our loved ones as they pass. It does not... It, yeah. They don't turn into little golden moats and float away conveniently. And they don't turn up in an additional Asgard on top of the Asgard named Valhalla which just raises further questions and immediately made people think, so Jane's coming back then because we saw her here. They demystified death in the way that they demystified gods. But yeah. the, if you keep working with that, people will be like, so if you die in Valhalla, where do you go then? Because if it's, if it's just another place in space and dimensions, then you're taking away... The undiscovered country from whose bore no man returns, that's the name of the sixth Star Trek film, but it's describing the afterlife which we shouldn't see it's describing a mystery and a magic and a, if you believe in it it can be the most wondrous or even terrifying thing but seeing it makes it mundane and if you're gonna make it mundane you'd better be doing the good place So yeah, Thor does a bit of kindergarten cop. Uh, I like how when he gives the kids this power, the top-down view is Yggdrasil, like it's the tree yeah. spreading upwards. Yeah. The the actual, much like many things in this film, I like what's actually happening. I don't like how they're doing it. Yeah. Um. So it's that like you know, empowering children. If they're children, we know, and like if they're not holding teddy bears, but if what they're doing, what Thor's giving them is their opportunity to protect themselves, and he's saying. Okay, children, I'm going to need you to run. Run for the ship. I'm going to try to protect you with part of my power. But I'll be honest, I don't know how long I can hold out, so you need to be fast. All right? You're as guardians. Now go. Then suddenly we've got stakes, because Thor has to hold out to protect the kids. And this is another thing that Jane could give her last ounce of strength to achieve. Circling us back to the emotional climax of the original Thor, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this. One woman dies, a lot of kids get to live, but it's by her choice. The whole point of Gore is saying, you gods don't care about little people. You don't care about nobody. 
Thor needs to illustrate, yes, I do. And these need to be kids from all over the place, not just Asgard. And I think they were. They kind of mentioned that. There are a few of them that aren't actually Asgardian. Um, But, like, there needs to be more of them. And it needs to be a case of, no, this is a god who really will fight for them. And the looking after the the little girl at the end, it it really needs to be, I am stepping up to the plate. I love the the idea of what they actually do with getting the enemy to relent because of what he's lost. That is a healing kind of ending. It just didn't feel justified at the end of all of this. This was written the day after I saw uh, Love and Thunder and I was pretty well taken with an aspect. So here's what I wrote. There's one thing that Thor the Dark World did that made an impact on Thor as a character and Thor as a franchise. While the first installment teased a forbidden love that was quickly dismissed, its sequel gave a permanent loss to Asgard as the lights flickered. It was the death of Queen Frigga, mother of Thor. Her funeral scene lifts out of the Dark World and remains a special moment in MCU history, the first true tragedy in our time with the Son of Odin. In the nine years since the Dark World, Thor has lost his father, his three best friends, his hometown, half his people, two founding Avengers, and his brother more times than he can count. He held himself personally responsible for half of all life in the universe, disappearing at the snap of a finger. Peter Quill in the first Guardians would call Thor a loser. The quote is like folks who have lost stuff, homes and our families, normal lives, It sent Thor into a depression that was played for laughs in Endgame, that decrescendos into a cosmic walkabout with the Guardians themselves. That's where Thor in Love and Thunder begins. He's aimless, meditative, and doesn't fit in with Marvel's found family. After losing and losing and losing, Thor decides he doesn't want to lose anymore, so he'll stay unattached. Quill tells him that's no way to live. The endpoint of someone missing a loved one, hurt, unattached, disillusioned, is this film's take on Gore the God Butcher. He prayed for his daughter to live, and she died for no reason. Cursed by a sword preying on his loss, he sets out to kill every god, 97% of which is done off screen. But th- this calls the attention of the Guardians, however, as they go off to respond to each distress-, distress call, Thor parts ways to help one friend in particular. I was very happy to see the return of Sif, small a role as it is. I was worried she wouldn't make it, but she lives to fight another day, minus an arm. She warns of the coming dangers and is pushed aside, kind of like all the other female warriors in this movie, but I-, I think we've talked about that. That brings us to Jane. I loved having her back, as well as appearances from Darcy and Selvig. What I always loved about the first two Thor movies was how big the cast was. You had the Earth friends and the Asgard friends, and they could be their own Avengers team, really. I felt that much camaraderie and power between them all, which which was never truly capitalized on. And now, over half of them are dead. And Jane is dying herself from stage four cancer. She may have been a little flighty as Thor, what with an eagerness to fight and a fascination with catchphrases, but as far as she knew, she was given a second lease on life and excited to use the power she had. What shocked me was her death to cancer was within one movie. I couldn't believe that, credit scenes aside. 
But that feeds into Thor's narrative, problematic as I understand that to be. Thor learns in this movie that when despair rears its ugly head, the only way to survive and to save lives is to choose love. He convinces Gore to choose love against all odds. Otherwise, they would have lost in this movie really badly. And he convinces himself to choose love, even at the prospect of Jane dying. They talk, Jane and Thor, through their fears that plagued them eight years ago, and they decide to make it work. But the superhero life takes and takes, and it robs Jane any chance of fighting off her disease. She lifts the hammer one more time to save Thor's life, and Thor loses her. He loses yet another loved one. And so Thor and Gore's daughter are left with each other. Both losers. Both folks who have lost stuff. Thor has the strength to choose love again, despite everything else, to step up and to be a father to a daughter. This all resonates with me still because Thor is the only Avenger that we have left theatrically. Steve, Tony, Nat, all gone. The last three founding Avengers splintered with almost no need to talk to each other again. But Thor is still here. Thor is always still here. I admire his strength to continue, to keep loving through it all. That's the end of my essay, but I do have one other thing I want to say. Go for it. In the Assembled documentary, Christian Bale says, I quote, if the people involved in the making of a movie are passionate, it's a transcendent experience. And I think that's a really good line coming from a really compelling actor and character in the movie. I think where this film falls short, after all that praise, is that all of that is in kind of the subtext. All of that is there in the movie, but because of the attitudes of the creators, both the director and the actor, there is there's a disconnect. It feels like this movie needs to have a couple of more runs through at the script stage. But because most of this movie was improvised and most of this movie was kind of just a party with, with friends, we, we get some of that fun coming off of the movie. Like, oh yeah, I can see that they had a good time making this. But the real text here, the real drama, the real character-driven stuff that has fueled the MCU is shoved to the side. So I think while all of my, my essay still has um, validity to it, I think now, uh, two months removed from the movie, I can see that there, were, there was really something missing from getting this to click with every single member of the audience. And that's that's my take that's on, on Thor. And that should just about do it for Thor. Uh, let us hope when he returns there is uh, as much of a turnaround as there was between Age of Ultron in 2015 and Ragnarok in 2017. Because if you think about it, like they've, they've now got to make up for how he was handled in this and Endgame. You're right, by the way, they, they, a lot of this um, can't just be conferred upon Waititi. Chris Hemsworth was right there suggesting things. And He's billed as a producer, too. Yeah, he had a, a lot of creative power there, and he was embodying Thor. I think ultimately if he'd have, been, he'd have said, I think I want to make this more serious, it would have been. And I'm sure Taika would have said, yeah, sure, whatever you like. I feel like that's how easy Taika was in the in the making of this. You know, people want me back, I'll make the film for them. 
Uh, I, I don't think he. I do not think he did this out of spite or to uh, illustrate. Hey, I don't care about anything. I know he does care about a lot of things. He definitely didn't bring his A game here. I think what was missing was with Ragnarok. What what he was working with was a script Marvel already had mm. from Chris Yost Chris and Craig Yost and Kaya, Carl, yeah. who were the showrunners on Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, mm-hmm. a show that was absolutely in love with Thor and everything about his world. Yeah, And uh, I'll recommend seeing Earth's Mightiest Heroes. It's on uh, Disney+, Plus, folks. Uh, it's, it, it, it's a bit patchy to start with because they began with a whole bunch of shorts, but there's a, there's a pretty good pris- super prison breakout. It's not on the level of Justice League Unlimited, but it's pretty damn good. Now, this show recording ran long, and we did ramble. We went off the Rainbow Bridge many times, so I have pared it down into the show you've just listened to. Us at our most on point. If you want to listen to over an hour of more granular comic discussion and more things that got our hackles up, then you can download the Cutting Class episode this weekend. These are the deleted scenes that didn't make the final edit, which is appropriate since it felt like there was a lot missing from Love and Thunder. So as usual, this will be available to everyone at the $5 level and higher on our Patreon. But we always try to give you folks our absolute best. And the people who throw in for Patreon every month make sure that happens for everyone else. And as always, our $15 top tier sponsors get a shout out. Their names are written in the stars. So thank you very much to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Helaz-Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skeels Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So before we go, can our guests point people in the direction of the stuff that they are most proud of, starting with Nami? I'm doing a lot of different things. If you just want a place to connect with me or to see what I'm doing, you can follow my Twitter at Nami the Nerd. Uh, otherwise, I'm in the School of Movies Discord every day, so come hang out. And Austin. Uh, same as Nami, I'm also in the School of Movies Discord all the all the time, but for my big project writing that I that I like to do whenever I have time, that's witswriting.tumblr.com. That's W-I-T-S hyphen writing.tumblr.com. On the subject of balancing tone, I recently reread slash caught up on the massive manga One Piece and decided to write a lengthy essay on why I think that series balances tones perfectly. On my blog, it's called My Favorite Panel in One Piece, parentheses, or Why I'll Happily Reread These 1,054 Plus Chapters Anytime. (laughs) 
and relate to what we just mentioned uh, also on that same blog. I've mentioned it on here before, but I, in the lead up to Avengers Endgame, I did a daily episode by episode recap and review of Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes oh, right. that I called Earth's Mightiest Retrospective. So I suppose you folks could watch along and then read along. I hope people do. That was pretty much the biggest writing project I've ever given myself. So Sharon and I will be back next week and we've decided to just do like after all of this heaviness and everything everywhere all at once and all of our commission season, we are doing something very silly. Just so we can have some fun. It is American Pie and American Pie 2 and American Pie 3 The Wedding and American Pie 4 The Reunion. It's a back to school special. (laughs) One very good thing about Thor Love and Thunder it made me immediately want to start producing the audio version of Panther Soul. I kept putting it off. I was going to wait until I'd written my next book, but then I came out of the cinema going, I need to compose this opera. It's a story of a hero very much like Thor, full of pride, full of talent, but whose perspective on life needs to be changed dramatically in this thrilling, funny, inspiring, heartbreaking treasure hunt. So I'm including a clip now just to sizzle it for those of you who haven't yet sampled the transportive worlds of the New Century Multiverse. I enjoyed our time too much, my dear boy. I was drunk upon those feelings. And when you had to give up the journeys? Yes, I kept it from you. I secretly told myself I might one day heal enough that I could manage this last magnificent expedition. There's still time. Come on, come with me now. I am old, Colo. I sat down here yesterday with vinegar in my veins, and now today I get up and everybody is younger. I wear a crown of gray fur. My leg is never healed, and my bones do not thank me for leaping. Tomorrow I shall be another relic upon these shelves. My mummified tail will be cautionary. I lean in and look upon him earnestly. You're not done yet. But if the Cicerone has no purpose but that which the adventurer can bestow, then you may as well let me take this trip on your behalf. So why not just give it to me? Give it to you? (laughs) I may be old, but I am not a fool. I will trade it with you. Deal. You don't know the terms of the trade yet. You hot-blooded young prat with moths in his ears. Maximus warns, pottering to the back of the shop. He moves journals aside, roots around under the table, slides open a trapdoor to a storage chest, and finally retrieves a familiar faded purple cloth wrapped around a shape. He sets it down between us, and I respectfully do not reach out to uncover it. How much do you want? price is going to be a promise. He says quietly. I nod. I understand. I say somberly, hoping this will work. I won't let my lifeline slip away as I sit in place. I shall live the fullest and greatest of existences. That's not what I was going to ask you to promise. He fixes me with those eyes, blue as periwinkle. The search for the Cloudbreaker is one that has lasted eons. It has been lost and found and lost again. Travelers and explorers tell stories of this paw of Samar, just 
waiting to be found by the one with the mind, body, and spirit equal to the task. Those who seek it want for glory and power. What I wish for you to understand is simple. What is that? He lays two pads across my chest. You have both already within here. Glory and power are like a well that is filled with the sweetest water. I want you to recognize when you have drunk enough. The room stirs with a ripple of energy that creeps the length of my spine. That moment will come tomorrow. Remember these words. Do not continue to drink from that well. It will drown you. And if the Cloudbreaker is in your grasp, then more than you can imagine will be dragged down to its demise. I hold his gaze. There is absolutely no way he is going to turn the keystone over if I tell him I am fetching this artifact for the wealthy lion we both used to sell to. But the promise he is drawing out of me feels important. I will not trample his words. I owe him that much. But that doesn't mean I cannot be cunning with how I make my declaration. I swear that the peak of my glory will be the turning point of my existence, I say, meaning every word, for the better. Maximus unwraps the cloth and inside I see the sandy stone sphere. All across its surface are small interlinking plates with shapes meticulously carved in them. Some of these form complete images, some merely look partial. The plates wind around the circumference of the ball with a thread-like texture, and as I pick it up from the table I find that it is surprisingly heavy, with a strange shifting gravity. So if you want to hear more of that, you can start listening to the unfurling tale of Panthersoul today. It is, I think, the best thing I've ever done. So, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Viking School is out.